ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. It's episode 100 today, and our special guest today probably doesn't need an introduction. It's the amazing Patrick McKenzie. And today we're going to talk about leveling up, which is slowly growing from simple products to more complex SaaS products. This episode is brought to you by your productized consulting guide. Want to get started with productized consulting? This book will teach you step-by-step how to craft your offer, overcome client objections, write your sales page, and strategically plan your services line. To get your copy, head over to uibreakfast.com slash productized and use your special promo code PODCAST20 on checkout to get 20% off any book package. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Jane. Thanks very much for having me today. We are thrilled to have you here and looking forward to uh, your wisdom today. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can offer any of that, but I can offer opinions and a few experiences. But Amazing. Um, and really, I feel like things have come full circle because back in 2013, everything in my consulting started from your article, which I'm surely going to link in the show notes, which is a growing, which is how I went from 100 an hour programming to something with consulting. And I heard the same kind of reviews from other people that it was life-changing for them too. <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> the thing that makes me happiest in work is when people are able to take the things I've written and then turn them into improvements in their own businesses. So always thrilled. We're going to start with a short blitz questionnaire. How does it sound? And then continue to the main topic. That sounds great. Question number one is, what do you do for a living these days? These days I work at uh, Stripe, the payments processor, on a product called Stripe Atlas. Uh, Stripe Atlas allows uh, entrepreneurs worldwide to incorporate uh, businesses and uh, get uh, up and running quickly on the internet so that they can spend more of their time on the things that create value in their business, like uh, building products and uh, selling them to customers, and less of their time dealing with the uh, necessary but not really value-adding parts of running a business, like dealing with accounting and filing taxes and uh, interfacing with the government. That resonates with us so much. We're dealing with very similar product uh, problems these days with UserList and, and Claire and Benedict. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, question number two is, how did you get there? A little bit of your background story. Sure. So I generally start my... Uh, my background story with arriving in Japan shortly after graduating from uh, U.S. University. Um, I grew up in the United States, uh, and I uh, uh, went to university for a combination of computer science and East Asian studies uh, with a focus on the Japanese language with the idea that I would be able to turn the combination of being a programmer who could speak Japanese into some sort of um, stable job in the U.S. computer industry. It took me a very long time, but uh, eventually that happened. Uh, but the thing that happened first was I came over to Japan and worked at a Japanese company for about six years. And in the middle there, I started a uh, small little hobby project called Bingo Card Creator, which made bingo cards for elementary school teachers, um, mostly as a hobby. I wanted to see that it could be done and maybe uh, earn a little money to play uh, to buy video games and maybe pay off my student loans a little bit faster. And... Uh, uh, the internet was not the world's most hospitable place for somebody uh, opening up a business in 2006. 
Uh, the, <laughs> I remember I spent a quarter of my uh, budget for launching this business on uh, faxing a contract from Japan to uh, probably Kentucky to uh, get set up with a payment processor. Um, there, uh, there were a few people doing similar things, but scattered all over the internet, and uh, we didn't. Uh, uh, you know, we met each other randomly online, but there was no uh, great concentration of uh, talent like there is these days on places like Hacker News. And um, there was uh, no really established body of practice on how one goes about selling software over the internet. Um, but uh, made a few friends, uh, started writing a little bit just to keep myself sane, and uh, eventually became known for uh, knowing a few things about a few things on uh, selling software <laughs> over the internet. And then... Um, uh, Joel Spolsky, whose website I had been hanging out and a little bit uh, brought me to Fog Creek to uh, do a bit of consulting work for them. Uh, memorably, he phrased, and I apologize if uh, is this a swearing appropriate con- uh, podcast or a swearing not so appropriate con- uh, podcast? Not too much. Not too much. Um, <laughs> he said that. Probably not. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll. I'll uh, I will uh, give the polite version of his comment to me. He said that uh, he hoped that I would be able to use my skills in the service of a business that was not uh, totally BS as opposed to the business I was actually running. And uh, 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 he's a funny guy, but uh, uh, that that landed a little bit close to home. Um, and I eventually uh, started uh, making other businesses that were a little grander in scope of uh, just the business that was uh, pulling a living out of the internet for not producing all that much value. Um, I made one business in a uh, semi-regulated industry to get people to their healthcare appointments on time, uh, and then uh, took a shot at making a business called uh, Starfighter, which I was hoping that would uh, uh, solve the engineering hire- hiring problem. I did that with uh, uh, two friends of mine, uh, Thomas and Aaron Tachek. Uh, sadly, that business didn't end up working out, and uh, at, uh, uh, let's see, August 2016 or so, um, my options were go back to consulting, which I was pretty good at, but which didn't exactly light a fire in my belly, even though it produced uh, really good results for clients. I could make my third-ish, I guess, SaaS business and make a go of that, or I could uh, see what else was out out there for options. And um, uh, a combination of a serendipitous conversation with uh, the folks at Stripe about uh, Atlas and uh, uh, me knowing that a child was on the way. Uh, uh, made me think, well, maybe it's time to uh, both try to do something that's a little more ambitious than what I'd be able to do on my lonesome, uh, but also uh, a little uh, riskier in the aggregate, but less of the risk concentrated on my shoulders specifically, in that uh, if I uh, <laughs> fail to make a lot of money quickly, it won't result in uh, my family having to uh, you know, move into subsidized housing. Um, and so uh, that's sort of how I ended up on uh, Atlas. Uh, and I've been working there. I, I wear a combination of hats. Um, one thing I do is uh, continue to help entrepreneurs out. That's always been the, the part of my job that I enjoy the most. Um, I uh, try to do things that are scalable, so like teaching people how to run SaaS businesses by writing about them, which you can find on the Atlas Guides if you Google Stripe Atlas Guides or go to www.stripe-atlas-guides. Um, and uh, then I do other projects as they uh, turn up. For example, one thing that we're doing right now is we're uh, helping uh, companies then incorporate on Atlas apply to Y Combinator. And so I help um, read people's applications, give them uh, ideas both on improving their business and on uh, how to improve the way that they phrase their business uh, such that the folks at YC can uh, see the value in it. 
Great. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm, I'm really glad that you now can leverage the power of uh, uh, Stripe and their huge audience and your... Uh, your your audience and your knowledge that sounds like an amaz- amazing alliance mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i really, I really like, like the opportunity to uh, uh the word that, that seems to come up more in my life now than it ever did before is leverage uh, and i think you just used it too uh, it's uh, <laughs> nice having you know an organization with a thousand really smart people working with me uh, uh, allows me to concentrate uh, more of my time on things that i'm uniquely good at and less of my time on things like making sure that payroll happens because there are people who are uh, capable of moving money around this company. Um, it's very good to be people capable of moving money around. Otherwise we'd be in a really rough way given our business. Um, but, uh, uh, and it sort of lets me uh, bite off bigger, more ambitious problems than I'd be uh, able to do if I was uh, focused uh, strictly on the uh, day-to-day of running my business, which I think is a, uh, sort of a natural stopping off point for us for a conversation that we're going to be having later about uh, how one can uh, start on things that are, uh, say, closer to home and at a relatively low level of uh, sophistication or intensity, and then uh, build up skills and uh, assets in running those things, and then later to uh, problems which are um, a little grander in scope, a little uh, more difficult and uh, a little more operationally intense than the uh, than the things that had gotten you there. Absolutely. What does your typical day look like? Oh boy, I don't have that many typical days. Um, so I live in Japan. The uh, majority of the people on my team are in San Francisco. So a typical day starts with me waking up uh, a few minutes before my morning meetings. And typically those will start at about 8 a.m. and last for three hours or so. Uh, we do a lot of talking about uh, strategy, about uh, check-ins on where various projects are in flight. Um, we're working on a bunch of things all the time to improve the Atlas product and uh, improve our quote-unquote go-to-market strategy for it. And uh, so after the meetings, I get a, a nice solid blanket, uh, block of time to just work on uh, the uh, things that I'm trying to get done that week. Uh, typically, I go to Stripe's office in Harajuku, which is a neighborhood in Tokyo, more famous for uh, fashion than for uh, startups, but it has a lot of startups. Uh, so I go over <laughs> to the office and we'll spend the uh, the rest of the day. Um, depends a lot on what I'm doing that day, but uh, could be writing, could be working with external writers. Like we just had uh, Stephanie Hurlbut write a great guide for us on uh, networking. And so I was uh, responsible for uh, assisting with the editing of that. Um, uh, some days I, I do do still do a little bit of coding, uh, usually utility stuff on the back end for improving our uh, metrics collection for uh, Atlas, and um, very occasionally uh, contributing to other initiatives in in Stripe as the opportunity arises. Uh, what do you enjoy the most and the least about your work? Well, that's an excellent question. <laughs> I think that, strictly speaking, the thing that I enjoy the most is that I work with uh, uh, the best team I've ever had the opportunity to work with in my life. Um, Atlas has plus or minus about 12 people working on it, and uh, they're uh, extremely good at what they do. Uh, there's a real hunger for getting better both at the things that they're individual re- individually responsible for and uh, the skills that are adjacent to it. Um, many of our team members are relatively early in their career, and so they're um, they're at the point where they're both like mastering their core skill, but also uh, realizing that there's um, like 
if one starts in UX, then one can move in like a producty direction or talking to customers direction or management direction, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them are starting to get to the uh, point after doing their thing for the last year or two where it's like, oh, wow, the the world is opening up a little bit. So it's very interesting to help them along as they're making those uh, those relatively early steps in their career and also uh, to help them uh, gain the skills they need to be successful as the next thing they do. Um, they're also very, very mutually supportive of each other. Uh, it's There's a really, really great team dynamic of um, uh, supporting the work everyone is doing, being, uh, I'm, I'm going to overuse the word supporting, but it's true, uh, being like emotionally supportive of people when they're feeling down, et cetera, et cetera, uh, while also uh, sort of acting as uh, competition in a good way. And that, <laughs> uh, you know, it's um, uh, mutually raising the bar. Are you, um, just curious, are you a remote team or how does it work? Uh, like many teams at Stripe, we have um, the majority of people out of the San Francisco office. Uh, we have a few remote members. Um, I'm one of them, although uh, I typically work out of a Stripe office, but not the one my team is uh, based out of. So I guess that makes me kind of sort of remote. And uh, then we have uh, uh, one to two folks who work out of our Dublin office. Um, and uh, the amount of remote employees uh, varies on a team-per-team basis at Stripe. There's uh, uh, there's some teams that are entirely based in San Francisco or entirely based out of one of our other offices. Uh, we have an engineering office in Seattle now. We just opened a engineering office in Dublin. Uh, and then we... Um, uh, we have some teams where it's more of a mix. We have some job descriptions at Stripe that are just very operationally difficult to do if you're not based in San Francisco and engineering managers, for et cetera. Uh, if you're not where the majority of the engineers are, that's a, a rough road to hole. Um, but uh, there's uh, some other things like um, uh, many of our DevOps-related positions, it's it's very helpful to have a wide, wide distribution of people for for that job, um, meaning geographic distribution, and uh, so we do. Thanks for, for, for doing this little tangent, because, <laughs> you know, remote or not remote is a pretty big question for teams these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think we're probably going to see more of it as time goes on. The... Um, it allows people to make a bunch of trade-offs that are right for their life that are difficult to do if you have to work, uh, go into the office every day. Uh, I have two small kids, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to have breakfast with them in the morning, which I probably wouldn't be able to do if I was uh, getting on a train for 90 minutes to uh, make you know, a 9 o'clock meeting. Uh, in Tokyo, that's a big challenge. Yeah, that, that would be pretty <laughs> rough. Um, and you know the folks that are in San Francisco have the the same situation, given that it's virtually impossible to find a uh, place in San Francisco proper which is um, affordable by mere mortals. Um, <laughs> so, what about the least part? What did you the least about your work? Oh, I don't have a great pre-baked answer uh, ready for that one. Um, <laughs> I'll say that it's been it's definitely been an adjustment uh, uh, becoming an employee after running my own thing for a long time. Um, that's not necessarily my least favorite thing, but it's certainly my biggest adjustment from the last uh, two years. Uh, the um, There's a bunch of meta types of work that exist when you're not the only decision maker that uh, I had sort of forgotten how to do. Like the, you know, before starting on a project, you should write a brief for the project and then circulate it to people and get opinions from them and then write a schedule for the project and like endeavor to keep to that schedule and tell people as, as the project goes on, uh, 
about the progress relative to the schedule rather than, you know, when I was the only person working at a company, it was pretty easy. Start working, keep working until the thing is done, move on to the next thing. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's some sort of like background threads that you have to keep in the back of your head. And like, uh, the, we have a relatively low level of politics, but any group of a thousand humans has some level of politics. So I have to keep that, but that thread running in the back of the head, the, you know, career trajectory thread running in the back of the head, the, um, uh, uh, various other, like just mechanics of employment things like, Oh, there's a performance review coming up. That's right. Employees do those things. <laughs> I had forgotten. Um, uh, and uh, it's uh, been an adjustment, but I've had a lot of help from it. And uh, there's sort of a mutual understanding that my, uh, uh, I'm coming at it from sort of a weird angle and people have been pretty supportive of that. That's awesome. That, that's even better than any pre-baked answer. You, you handled it pretty gracefully. Usually people complain about, you know, uh, running their own accounting or something like that, but here, being an employee, you're trading that for other little bureaucracy. Yeah. I will say one of the nice advantages of being of an employee is like a paycheck arrives. Right. Always the same amount. <laughs> never short on the same day every month. And like, I had forgotten how nice that was. It's pretty cool. That's that's amazing, really. I haven't had that for a while <laughs> either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is your next big thing, maybe for you personally or for uh, Stripe Atlas? Anyone you choose? It's hmm. a great question. Uh, so I have the the list of quarterly goals to get through, and we are uh, coming up on the end of the quarter. That's another thing. Like quarters matter in in big businesses because you need some sort of cycle to operate on, and it seems like everyone settles on a quarterly cycle. And in a way that they don't kind of matter in small businesses because you know, like one week stops, the next week starts. And it's just like a continuation of that for forever with the occasional breakup of, Oh yeah, taxes are due. Um, uh, yeah. So that's the immediate thing. We have some big news coming down the pipe for Atlas. Unfortunately, uh, uh, here's another weird thing. Like the, the last business I ran, I literally had my company's revenue pasted on a web on a uh, page of the website. And these days there's, like actual stuff that I can't talk about until it's public knowledge. You know, weird. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the next big thing is not public knowledge yet, but will be knock on wood pretty soon. Um, <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, not the announcement that Atlas will be making, but just what we want to accomplish with it, um, the number of people who know about Atlas in the world right now is uh, far lower than I would hope. Uh, you know, eventually we want to be incorporating half of the technology companies worldwide and we're, we're not quite there yet. Uh, and so the, um, <laughs> like the middle level big strategic project for me over the uh, next couple of years of my career is, okay, how do we get to incorporate half the number of companies worldwide? And uh, uh, what can I do that is in the, uh, the service of that or in the service of um, improving the results of the companies that Atlas has incorporated or will in the future. Amazing. So let's continue with the main topic, which is uh, which is growing your way up from little projects, uh, from little products to bigger things. And, and first, I would love to hear why people should do products at all. Why not settle on consulting and making, you know, great money forever and not bother about any kind of whatever they call it, passive income, passive 
revenue, passive recurring mm-hmm. revenue, which is even better. So I want to stay, say that while I have my own aesthetic preferences for businesses, I think that uh, there are, broadly speaking, many ways to run a successful business. And if one is a consultant and one is running a happy consultancy and one feels fulfilled by the work and thinks that one is uh, accomplishing a lot for the world and meeting your goals, bully for you. I am so happy and I would never tell you that you have to do a product just to be cool. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> let me sketch out some goals that some of your listeners might have uh, if they're running a consultancy. Uh, as someone who ran one for a few years, I know that 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 uh, consultancies, particularly small consultancies, have sort of a feast and famine life cycle to them, where you spend a bit of your time in uh, hard execution mode on client projects, and uh, a bit of your time uh, in between hard execution mode on client projects, on lining up the next gig, uh, various business administrative things, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you're making good money, you are making very good money. Um, but there are lean times in between the periods of making uh, lots of money, uh, particularly if you are uh, giving 100% of your attention to uh, delivery rather than uh, perpetually keeping a thread running on uh, doing prospecting, getting the next gig lined up, et cetera, et cetera. And so what a lot of consultants want from a product business is the uh, relative certainty of having something that is in the market every month, even if uh, they're not. Uh, such that it generates recurring revenue and um, so that either they can uh, transition away from the uh, feast and famine life cycle of consultancy or uh, so that they can just use a baseline of recurring revenue as a way to make their consultancy better. One of the nice things about uh, the combination of a consultancy and any sort of product business uh, is that if you have recurring revenue, you can be pickier at the consultancy because uh, since you aren't forced immediately like close any deal you possibly can um, uh, to avoid having zero billings this month. You can uh, sort of take your pick of the deals and only do your best possible work for the people who are your best possible clients at the best possible rates you can get. And uh, after a few cycles of doing that, you can sort of position yourself as a um, the premium uh, consultant in whatever your field is you will tend to be associated with more successful uh, engagements because you'll be able to head off the engagements that are going to be less successful just by qualifying yourself away from those clients. Like if a client is difficult to work with, no worries, don't work with them. Um, And then uh, because you are exposing yourself to more successful engagements, you'll tend to get a uh, uh, better references, better uh, indicia that your work is good, et cetera, which snowballs. Um, so even having a relatively not so wonderful product business can allow your consulting business to uh, scale to heights that uh, just getting the consulting business to would have been difficult. And um, that was definitely something I saw with Bingo Guard Creator, which was objectively, um, you know, no great shakes as a product business, but it let me really, really dig on, on the consulting side of things, um, which ended up working out pretty well for me, uh, all things considered. The um, the other thing I would say about product businesses is that product businesses are more amenable than consulting for juggling with um, other obligations in your life. So, for example, if you are uh, at a life stage <laughs> where you're having kids, for example, or you might be uh, dealing with a health problem, your own or loved ones, or if you uh, are just feeling like, hmm, 
I don't really want to throw myself 100% at the work this year. There's there's something else I want to do. Maybe it's open source software. Maybe it's I want to uh, spend some time learning a new field in detail. Maybe it's just, you know, I want to do some woodworking. Um, it's very difficult to do woodworking when you're on the <laughs> clock for a client. Uh, but it's relatively easy to do woodworking when you're uh, uh, just, you know, waiting by the, uh, the inbox for emails to come in from uh, happy people who are consuming a product of yours. And um, so those are some of the the reasons why people uh, uh, transition to product businesses. There's Josh Pickford uh, doing concrete things and sitter and sale is <laughs> a perfect example of what mm-hmm. you're saying. <laughs> yep. Um, I also think that uh, I've I've seen friends of ours uh, who have gone through the um, very much needing the flexibility that a product business has. And I'm not super open about it, but in at least two of the last 10 years, I was dealing with uh, um, recurrent uh, uh, depressive episodes, which was, um, it would be very difficult for me to uh, sustain a consulting business while simultaneously dealing with a health problem of that magnitude. Uh, But because I had a, you know, happy little SaaS business running and SaaS businesses are more or less guaranteed to have, uh, you know, whatever last month's revenue was plus a little bit every month for forever. Um, even if I was feeling like I just can't raise up the effort to work right now, uh, the, the business kept chugging, chugging along without me. Um, and you know, one of our friends is, uh, as I won't bring other people's individual health situations into it, but we're, we're mutually aware of people in our peer group who have, uh, um, uh, very much needed to take some time off to sort through things. And uh, product businesses are uh, very supportive of that because the product business does not care if you're being productive today. Absolutely. Um, being available for clients is, is just generally big burden for a human, even though used to that because they're employees. But as, as the more you you treat yourself with the qualified clients and great revenue and everything, the less you want to trade your direct time for something. <laughs> and the, uh, here is a perfect example. Well, I'm sorry to hear about the situation that you or some people have been through, but it's great to hear that product business has been the life savior in that situation. Mm-hmm. There's certainly, you know, many sorts of support that people have, uh, the support of family and friends, the support of, uh, uh, you know, healthcare systems and uh, their nation, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to the, uh, to the extent that people who are running businesses often end up on needing to rely on uh, their own resources or the resources of the business to get them through uh, the peaks and valleys of life. Uh, the uh, certain ways to um, operate the business are more amenable to uh, certain constraints than other ones. Absolutely. So what is the classic, uh, what is the classic uh, pattern to follow while you are starting to with with products, I would say that the simplest version of this is some sort of info product, which is, you know, a book or a course, but maybe there, there are other stages. Yep. Um, starting from what you don't want to do, uh, you probably don't <laughs> want to start from, uh, let me throw myself into building a SaaS application because, um, the, uh, amount of engineering and investment required to build a SaaS application from scratch, assuming you've never done it before, is quite high. And uh, your SaaS application will start out with uh, zero revenue every month. 
and uh, learning how to market and sell a SaaS application is uh, highly non-trivial. And if you uh, do not have uh, a source of capital to give you some uh, runway to make all the classic mistakes and learn <laughs> how to do online marketing, learn how to uh, uh, start creating a sales, um, repeatable sales process for the business, uh, you're going to be in a pretty rough way for a pretty extended time. Um, most of my peers take about 18 months before the, uh, before they get a SaaS business to the point where the business would um, uh, sustain uh, themselves and the founding team at uh, some reasonable approximation of what their, uh, of what their rate would be. So uh, instead we often suggest that people start with a easier business to, um, to deliver and to sell. And like you said, info products are a great example of this. Uh, it's very easy to sell an info product into a, um, into a market of professionals or businesses. All you need to do is take one thing that you know well enough to uh, be hired to do and distill it into a, uh, into a book or a video or uh, some artifact that would save someone from needing to spend two weeks researching the thing on the internet and then put that on a landing page and put a price tag on it and people will start paying the price tag. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> and no matter how easy you think it is, you it's easier than that. Uh, the uh, One of the things I saw, and this blows my mind, uh, it blows my mind less now that I'm 35, but I, I would never have credited this as being possible when I was younger. Uh, a Someone emailed me and he said, hey, uh, I like what you're doing with this old bootstrapper thing. I'm writing a book about bootstrappers. I'd like to interview for, you for it. Actually, the book is just going to be a bunch of interviews with bootstrappers. I said, okay, this sounds like an interesting project. I'm in. Sure, send me the, send me the thing. And so I spent a few minutes writing the interview and sent it back to him. And uh, he, just as advertised, he collected 15 or so interviews, published them in a book, um, promoted it through Twitter, got onto Hacker News, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he sold, um, let me say, more money than I made in the first year of full-time employment that I had back in the day. And then oh. only, after, only after I learned that fact did I learn that uh, he had not yet graduated high school. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Seriously? Um, Do I, we know this am, book? Do we know this person? Uh, I will have to look back in my inbox. This happened many years ago, but I... Uh, I swear this is the honest to God truth. And uh, when I think of what I was doing in high school, both from a perspective of, of what I was spending my time on, but also, you know, had a summer job to pay for college. And I, I worked in a hot warehouse, uh, you know, cleaning oil off of pipes with a toothbrush and some toxic sort of solvent oh. uh, to make hundreds of dollars. And he made orders of magnitude more than hundreds of dollars. Um, by sitting behind a computer and sending out a few emails and then doing some uh, light design work. And, and I don't say that out of jealousy. It, it was a nice book. I enjoyed reading the, uh, uh, reading the 15 interviews and it was the, you know, immaterial amount of money, $14 or $15 or $20 or something. Uh, I felt it was well spent. Uh, so good on him. Um, you can totally outperform a high schooler <laughs> if you are listening to this podcast. 
Even though I, I need to say that we need to adjust the expectations here because things like getting on Hacker News and selling your book on Twitter don't really happen like from scratch automatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, most yeah, likely, if a normal person does that, it's not like you're going to make thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. I think there's uh, uh, definitely quite a bit of hustle involved, but um, the uh, another one of the nice things about info products is that there is sort of a playbook for selling them, which works pretty well. Um, and that playbook is you uh, throw up a landing page before the uh, the product is ready. You start collecting emails based on that, just the simple synopsis of what it's going to cover. You uh, then run a launch sequence after the product is close to being ready, um, probably after it's written but not released. And uh, you dribble out a, you know, a sample chapter or something to the email list and then say, okay, as of this date, uh, it'll be available, and then there's some sort of discount which will expire after the state. And you send a few emails to remind people. Uh, and if you're successfully able to uh, to collect a few hundred email addresses, then you can reasonably expect to get uh, you know tens to low hundreds of sales times uh, a book that you will hopefully have priced in the uh, mid two figure USD region. Uh, and so many people have. You know, just taking that playbook and run with it the first time around, uh, it's uh, relatively proven. Um, so certainly if you just you know put up a buy button on the internet, um, I, I don't expect the money will magically be attracted to the buy button. But uh, <laughs> if um, uh, given that one writes well and one is capable of attracting the attention of people by writing well, uh, it's a relatively repeatable process. Um, SaaS, there exists a bunch of playbooks for how to market SaaS, but it's uh, and they're repeatable to a certain degree, but uh, they take an awful lot of uh, just grindy, grindy work until it starts to um, starts to get to the point where uh, it becomes a meaningful amount of money to a gainfully employed professional. Um, whereas the most of um, just to set expectations, most of my uh, extended circle of internet buddies who uh, run a uh, sell an info product for the first time and do it with uh, work something like execution uh, get between like ten and forty thousand dollars on their first info product launch um, which uh, is a not inconsiderable amount of money <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's actually English. I'm sorry. I, I don't speak all that much on a day-to-day basis. Uh, not inconsiderate amount of money? No, inconsiderate means a different thing. Uh, it's it's not a small amount. And, and uh, after you've done it once, you kind of like, you learn the mechanics of doing that kind of thing so that you could follow it up with a second book on a similar topic uh, in, you know, a matter of weeks after the first one. And uh, the fun thing is a lot of people who bought your first thing and liked it will be right there to buy the second thing. Um, and you have the email list and, and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> yep. You have the email list. You have um, the money in your bank account, which is a nice thing. It can be used to buy uh, rent and food and all sorts of things that money is used for. Um, it can be used to buy the help of specialists and doing things like uh, increasing the production quality of your next book or video series. Um, you've, uh, you've got the email list. You have the relationships, customers that you're training to expect wonderful things from you and training to pay you money. Uh, and this is sort of what we mean when we say that uh, you're leveling up. You're building up some assets that uh, your business gets to keep between projects. 
So it's um, it's less like a consultancy where consultancy gets keep some things between projects, but often you know you parachute into a new client and it's like day one all over again. Um, but uh, in a in a product business, uh, you know you keep your list, you uh, keep the technologies that you've created on the back end, uh, and uh, the uh, you know your standard procedure for running a launch, for example. And you're able to apply that to more products as they come down the line. Um, you're able to uh, tweak it. Uh, you have an existing back catalog of products that you can use to help promote the new things. Like, for example, uh, uh, bundles are a wonderful thing. You know, if you didn't buy this separately, if you buy it with my new thing, then you get it for, let me make up two price points. Um, you sold a book at $50. You are selling a uh, a video course at $250. Why don't you bundle them together and get them for $275 and then free money? <laughs> um, uh, so there's so many things that uh, get better as you, uh, as you go along in the product journey. As, as someone who published several books, you get all the systems in place. And actually, it's true with everything in life. Once you just go through a single process once, then you know how exactly this, what exactly the steps are, and that makes it, you know, paradoxically easier next time and next time and next time. Yep. But also, uh, there is marketing books as opposed to uh, as opposed to SaaS. I think the marketing methods are rather similar, but the buying buying uh, abilities of people are so dramatically different, and people don't really think about that when they start their SaaS. So for for the info product to be bought, just needs to be appealing. It's an impulse purchase. But for a SaaS product to be bought, it needs to be truly useful and compliant with a number of circumstances in people's lives. So it's mm-hmm. like the conversion rate is so dramatically different from info products, having done both. Yep. Yep. Uh, I totally agree with that. The... Um, the way that you described it, uh, that uh, you have to match several of someone's circumstances that you don't have control over is absolutely accurate. Uh, there might be multiple stakeholders involved in the decision to adopt a particular bit of SaaS at a company. Um, they, uh, I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs who make a, who make a product, which is a, um, objectively, it's a good product, qua product, but uh, it is, can only be adopted at like the certain a certain point in the life cycle of a uh, client's project, and so um, there exist SaaS products where uh, just structurally there is a four week window every uh, six months where uh, a particular buyer could buy the product, and so if you know if you collect six thousand visitors to your website, probabilistically only one thousand of them could possibly purchase it right now. Um, which is a rough place to be if you get 6,000 visitors to look at a book. Um, all of them can buy a book right now. Uh, there's, uh, assuming, you know, they're qualified traffic. Uh, there, there's nobody who is like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I forgot to read this month. <laughs> that, that never happens. Uh, and there's nobody who has to say, hey, boss, I'm thinking of reading a book. Do I have permission to read a book? That is also not something that happens in a uh, professional workforce. Um, and there's nobody that has to go to, you know, a boss's boss and say, boss, really, really hoping to get some budget this year. It doesn't have to be right now, but maybe. 
after we do the budgeting process in Q4, can we swing a book? <laughs> and they come back and like, I don't know. The board of directors is really bringing, breathing down my neck. There will be no new books <laughs> until no earlier than Q2 next year, um, which is something that happens in SAS purchases, believe it or not. Um, uh, so yeah, books are much easier to sell. Um, it, uh, there's a variety of pro- products that don't like look like a book, but that are sold relatively similar. So uh, video courses, um, combinations of the two, or like a book combined with some amount of code that, uh, that someone can use or templates, etc. cetera. Um, another thing that has similar dynamics is uh, plugins to existing mm-hmm. software, like uh, plugins for WordPress, um, uh, plugins for Shopify, although they, they Shopify is a funny case. It falls a little bit between like a plugin for WordPress and a little bit like a plugin for SaaS or a little bit like SaaS product rather. Um, uh, themes, components uh, for everything from like you know, packaged APIs for iPhone applications to, uh, to um, uh, scripts that one would install, et cetera. Um, and uh, uh, basically small self-contained things that don't have an always on component to them uh, that are easy to adopt and get running and that have, um, uh, they, they pick a really tight need for a relatively tight uh, set of customers and then attempt to fill it uh, as close to exactly as possible. Mm-hmm. So as we discuss those, the technical level of support grows but uh, the mechanics of selling it remains similar to one-off info products, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. The um, so it's funny if you're selling uh, downloadable eBooks, you can expect to get almost no customer support inquiries about the uh, eBook. Occasionally, someone will say, "I didn't get it. Can you email it to me again?" And you email it to them again. Occasionally, they will lose the receipts. And it's one of the great constants of running a business on the internet. A lot of people seem to not be able to get a receipt in their inbox. I, I have never figured <laughs> it out. Um, but be that as it may, that's the thing that happens and you deal with it. Um, but you don't have to debug anyone's computer typically to be able to help them open a PDF file. Um, most of the people who buy professionally oriented uh, eBooks are uh, sophisticated enough to open a PDF file uh, without your help. Um, now, if you do things like WordPress plugins, uh, you will have to assist people with the installation of the WordPress plugin with troubleshooting. Um, it doesn't work with the ancient version of PHP that's installed on my computer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, working with well-supported platforms like WordPress will uh, eliminate some portion of that issue, but not 100% of it. Um, and uh, then... Uh, you know, SAS has typically slightly, I would say SAS has more of a support burden than um, than plugins simply because the range of things that people want to do with it are larger. So you'll typically end up supporting the business need rather than supporting the mechanics of using it. Um, but uh, uh, the, the way end of the spectrum for most amount of work uh, that you'll have to do is if you give people uh, downloadable software that they run on their own machines, uh, which is just a complete nightmare. Don't do it. Don't do it. And okay. An exception for those of you doing iPhone apps because uh, Apple 
it insulates you from all the difficulties there or the great majority of the difficulties. But um, I will, I will never, as long as I live publish downloadable software for a PC or Mac again, it just, it makes no sense. A thing that can compare to it is probably WordPress plugin mm-hmm. distributed to wide non-literate audience. Very mm-hmm. probably comparable. <laughs> yep. And- so you, when you publish something, you have to think what exactly you want to avoid. If you want to avoid a support request, don't publish a WordPress plugin, especially if you're not technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would uh, choose both a you choose businesses you're in both uh, in relative to the constraints that you have. So if you, uh, you know, one reason to uh, choose to do a, a dip the toe in the water sort of product business as opposed to jumping straight into SaaS, if you have a, a full-time job or a consultancy that demands most of your time, is that uh, the um, most SaaS products will require some sort of uh, uh, sales work that might occur at hours that are otherwise taken up by your, uh, your main job. But, uh, uh, the, the marketing work for an info product can be done in nights and weekends, um, or asynchronous to whatever your core work hours are. Um, but not just, you know, don't solely be fo- uh, forced by your constraints into doing something. You should also think of, um, what are you really good at? What are you enthusiastic about doing? Um, who are you enthusiastic about surfing? That one, it took me many years to figure this out. Uh, but I, I built a product for uh, elementary school teachers because I had a good mental model for elementary school teachers. And I thought, oh, I'll be helping educators. Who doesn't like helping educators? And after seven years um, of helping educators on a day-to-day basis, I realized of the set of uh, people who do not enjoy talking to educators every day, I'm probably one of them. That makes it suboptimal <laughs> to run a business where I will structurally have to talk to them every day. Um, and, uh, I find that I connect much better with a geeky audience. I, uh, I speak the language and feel like I'm not faking it. I, you know, we have a, uh, a common set of values in many cases. Um, we, uh, uh, there are levers that I have for creating value to a, um, a software engineering or software entrepreneurial audience that I, uh, fundamentally don't have when I'm working with teachers or the office assistants at uh, physicians offices, which was a market for one of my other products. And um, uh, so if I had a do over uh, as soon as I had reasonable signal that, Oh, okay. It seems like I'm going to be working with software people the rest of my life. And I rather enjoy working with software people. Then I definitely should have focused all my products on that software people audience. It's interesting. These days, we are getting more of that advice, which is focus on the audience first, speak the audience first. But somehow that factor of, of, of loving the audience is not exactly written anywhere on the surface. So you have mm-hmm. to know them, they have to be able to pay and other economic criteria, but you have to like them emotionally so you can deal with them, just like you said. Yeah. Um, I think that there's definitely successful businesses in the world that don't come from a perspective of loving their customers. Um, <laughs> and we can all think of examples because we've been treated by uh, badly bad businesses before. But uh, fundamentally, I think if you're going in business because you want to be happy, then you are highly likely to achieve happiness uh, with a uh, user population who you enjoy serving, who 
you feel like their goals are your goals and their values are your values rather than saying, okay, um, I have like, there's clearly some businesses that have open contempt for the population that they serve, but that run the business because they, uh, that running the business is a good way to make money. And uh, they like the things that can be bought with money. Um, but uh, we're, as creators, we're in kind of a nice state of the world where um, not every audience that we could possibly want to serve, but a lot of the audience that we want to serve that we want to serve um, can help us solve the money problem fairly easy, easily while not having contempt for the customers. And given that that is something that is possible, I would strongly suggest taking that. Um, if I can loop back for one second on a thing that I just mentioned as an aside, um, there are a lot of populations that are. Uh, might strike you as, oh, these are folks who share my interests, or I think I would like working with them, uh, that don't make very good customers. Um, one of the reasons might be that uh, the population typically does not have a huge amount of money. Um, I would uh, uh, generally tend to suggest that you avoid working for uh, customer groups that don't have a lot of money. Like I have a variety of friends who want to make uh, software for churches, and uh, there exists some good businesses in that broad spectrum of uh, markets, but um, uh, bluntly, most of them are uh, not the best uh, organizations in the world to sell software into. So if you really feel strongly that you want a uh, large portion of your professional output to uh, redound to the benefit of a particular cause that doesn't have money, I would suggest that you make a good business, uh, get your you know personal financial situation under control, and then just straight up donate your time and subsidize down to zero the price of the uh, project that you want to build for uh, charitable or aesthetic purposes. That's a great remark. Thanks for sharing this idea. Exactly. So once we're, once we're up to, up to the SaaS, once we're ready, um, it's still not a great idea to build a complex SaaS from day one, right? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, we're describing a sort of a trajectory here, but uh, there's, uh, there's no point on the trajectory that is a wrong point to simply stop and say, I enjoy doing this thing that I find myself doing. I think I will do more of it. Um, but um, uh, the the glide path to getting to a complicated, uh, operationally complicated business like SaaS is to uh, start by um, building credibility with an audience via doing things like info products and then uh, move to um, a relatively low complexity uh, software offering. And the software offering might look something like a uh, productized consulting offering where uh, the uh, the software doesn't do all the thing. It's sort of like an organizational tool for you doing a lot of the thing or you or staff or even the client doing a lot of the thing. Uh, and then uh, you gradually build more features for the software to make it less of a uh, organizational tool for a human providing most of the magic and more of a uh, uh, like start with an organizational tool, move to a workflow tool, and then move to a tool that actually gets the user uh, closer to having a solution rather than uh, being able to organize the work of uh, smart people to uh, solve the problem. That is, uh, that is an interesting definition of productized consulting because it's not just implementing the services, but what we often see uh, products coming off as a spin-off from um, bigger agencies who build tools for themselves. Is that the example that you're describing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and once, so 
the best way to learn is to to ship smaller things as often as you can. And I remember that phrase from your talk, which is start accumulating unfair advantages for your next one, right? <laughs> I think um, that might have been my phrase or that might have been Rob Wong's phrase. Uh, really? I think the, <laughs> uh, he had four examples of... Um, in one of his microconf talks, he had four examples of things that uh, are unfair advantages, which if any of the listeners are not familiar with the idiom, it's um, assume that the world is is filled full of people who are as smart as you and filled full of people who uh, work as hard as you. What can you do they cannot do simply by being as smart and hardworking as you are? And um, uh, a, one of the... Like an example of a thing that's not an unfair advantage is just understanding your space very well, because a smart, hardworking people, uh, English, um, a smart, hardworking person can learn about your space just like you, a smart, hardworking person, learned about the space. Um, an example of an unfair advantage is something like a, uh, you know, building a, a reputation for yourself in the community where. You cannot simply snap your fingers and say, "I'm smart." Where's my reputation? Um, that that's something that takes you know years to build. Uh, so get started on it today. It's a very useful thing to have. Um, man, there's so many things that are. Uh, uh, if you ever want to do anything in the future, starting today is an excellent time to start because they uh, the value compounds upon itself. Um, that that almost is one unfair advantage. Having started ten years ago. Um, so given that, you know, that that will be an unfair advantage in 2028 start today. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. My understanding of that is that, you know, having some niche experience, for example, or some knowledge would be an unfair advantage, but you're saying you're giving a new, new spin to that term, uh, which is totally non-monetary assets, like personal connections, reputation. What, what else is in that line? Mm -hmm. um, access to things that other people can't get access to. Uh, so, for example, if you have a um, like one example is your email list. Um, the if you curate a list of six thousand people uh, who have decided that they trust you, that the mere fact of someone being smart doesn't give them access to the same group of six thousand people. If there is a community that trusts you, whether that community is defined by a particular online space like Hacker News or a, a broader thing like you know, the entertainment industry. I don't know how you would get the entire entertainment industry to trust you, but something like <laughs> that. Um, that is an example of uh, something that other people will, will feel like, oh, man, it's unfair. They're not, like, it's, it's really hard to get the bandwidth that, that, that is already spoken for in that community. Um, uh, the... I'm blanking on other ideas. Um, if I can can extend and amplify on a point made before, I don't think that uh, in most cases knowing something is mm -hmm. uh, a sustainable unfair advantage because the internet basically uh, like basically as an operating principle uh, drives down the value of uh, knowing things. Um, that's not true. It it drives down the value of exclusively knowing th things because it uh, distributes the knowledge of them uh, very, very quickly. So like, uh, if you are, 
if the thing that you know is something that is literally only possible to be known by a person, one person in the world, and you can somehow monopolize that knowledge and keep other people from independently rediscovering it, then that might theoretically be an unfair advantage. But if your advantage is simply like, oh, I really understand the U.S. healthcare industry and how hyper-regulation works, then uh, somebody is, you know, um, one week of Googling, two weeks of reading, and then one phone call with a lawyer away from understanding how the hyper-regulation works in the U.S. Uh, healthcare industry. Um, so that's, that's difficult to uh, turn into a sustainable form of advantage. Mm-hmm. Thank you. These are really great examples. Uh, so uh, I think we really need to wrap up today's conversation, even though we should, we could probably talk for another hour <laughs> about it. Uh, what do you think uh, are red flags? I don't know, red flags for SaaS and, and green flags for SaaS uh, when you should not go forward with your uh, product concept or when you should I'll say that the biggest red flag for SaaS is that you've uh, talked to less than, I'm going to pick a number, and this number is going to sound high for some of you and low for others. But let me just say that don't build a SaaS product until you've talked to 50 people. And if you think that, wow, talking to 50 people about a product is a whole heck of a lot of work, um, take it from two people who have run SaaS products before. Running a SaaS product is a heck of a lot of work. It's a huge commitment of your time over the next several years of your life. If you're not willing to talk to 50 people right now, you're probably not going to be able to go the distance on it. So talk to more people than you feel comfortable with by a lot uh, before you write one line of code. Talk while you're writing the code. Talk before you launch. Talk after you launch. There will be a lot of talking. Get used to it. Um, the... Uh, the other red flag that I typically describe to people is that um, when you are talking to people, because you are going to talk, 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 talk to people, uh, if they're not consistently describing the problem you're solving as being one of their top three problems in life for themselves or their business, then you are probably uh, going to have a tough time selling your SaaS. Um, not selling the company, but rather selling the product. And the reason is that people have... Uh, uh, Lots and lots of reasons to not adopt something today. In fact, they will they will default to not adopting basically every mm-hmm. product in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you need to overcome their inertia and overcome their activation energy for adopting your thing. And if they know that um, I am dying for the lack of this, there is no possibility that I will hit my quarterly goals if I do not have some solution to this, or my business will fail if I don't get an anti-fraud solution uh, by uh, two weeks from now then they will get themselves over uh, whatever the hoops are to get in on your product and start using it. But if they're not there, if it's just like, well, you know, I could, like, it saves time. I could use some time. Uh, Then everything that that matters to them in their life is going to be higher on the stack than figuring out, okay, I have to uh, put some data into this product and I have to have a meeting to tell my team to start using it. And I got to nag them to keep using it. I got to check in like two weeks from now and figure out where the employee credit card is. And, and there will be a million reasons why they don't convert. And a lot of those reasons, like you, you can solve 200,000 of them and people will come up with 200,000 new reasons on why they don't convert. Whereas uh, if you are generally solving one of people's top three hair and fire problems, uh, they will pull the solution out of your hand. Um, let's see, green flags. Um, 
the thing that Y Combinator says they look for is uh, qualitative or quantitative uh, proof that people just love it. Um, and that is something that uh, uh, it's easy to describe and but it's difficult to emotionally connect to until you've been in a business that both has that and a business that doesn't have it. Uh, and they are night and day from each other. Uh, every product that I've ever run has had people say, oh, this is great. I really like it. Thank you for building it. Um, but the the products that I've been associated with it, the people genuinely love um, uh, a fire in the eye passion about things. Uh, the, uh, you know, all of our faults were excused uh, and the, uh, the, uh, people would make up stories about things that the product couldn't actually do that they attributed uh, to the product as being possible simply because they their experience of uh, having used it was so nice and and the things that the things that were not at that bar uh, were just night and day from doing it um, and given that uh, if you're listening to this podcast you might be coming at uh, this from the position of uh, you're funding your own business. Uh, this is uh, coming out of your limited uh, your limited budget for running the business and your limited uh, uh, sort of budget of uh, your own cycles to spend on running the business. It's just so, so much easier to uh, run a business where uh, Silicon Valley folks say that it has product market fit, uh, where your users just love the thing that you're doing, than it is to run a business where uh, you are attempting to create an engine to sell the thing that you are doing to people who need it but don't really love it. I have I have never heard this criteria as being one of the key you know green flags for assess. This is really a great insight. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm really glad to have helped. Um, if you if you want to read more about this, uh, the term of art is product market fit. Um, but uh, this is just my own personal personal gloss on it. Yeah. Uh, w- one resource I think we need to link to uh, to conclude the conversation is uh, one of your latest amazing guides, uh, which is, uh, I think it's called the Business of SaaS Guide. Is that correct? Uh, perhaps the Business of SaaS at... Uh... The Business of SaaS at Stripe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's at uh, stripe.com slash atlas slash business dash of dash... Uh, SAS, S-A-A-S. And, yes, um, yes. <laughs> so be linked in the show notes. And we're always writing new things on Atlas. Uh, and because I write a lot of stuff for Atlas, uh, a lot of it is about SAS specifically. So uh, if you sign up for our email list on the bottom of that page, you'll get uh, our new guides as they come out. Awesome. Where can people find you personally and your work online? So I'm Patio11 on Twitter and uh, most other places on the internet. Uh, I spend <laughs> perhaps a little too much time on Twitter these days. Uh, the my blog is at Calzumius K A L Z U M U S dot com, and uh, I've had an open inbox policy for most of the last ten years, and I intend to keep it. So uh, my email address is on my blog. Feel free to email me anytime if I can help you out on things. Uh, I I get a lot of email these days, and I have uh, two very young kids and a fairly demanding job, so I can't get back to one hundred percent of it. Uh, but uh, uh, you lose absolutely nothing by send me, sending me an email. And I do genuinely love talking to people who are uh, getting things off the ground. So please, if I can ever help you, drop me a line. Well, thank you, Patrick, for sharing your wisdom today. It was an amazing conversation. And uh, I wish everyone who's listening here good luck with building their own products, starting from small and growing to big. <laughs> yeah. 
I also wish you uh, all the best of luck and skill. And if I can ever help out or if uh, Stripe Atlas can ever help out, please get in touch. Thank you, Patrick. Have a great day. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much. You too, Jane. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It will help other people discover this podcast. Thank you.